Mario plus flower equals firepower. And so Mario is your customer, flower is your product, and firepower is what they want. And what you got to sell is firepower. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to find your first 100 customers and what you should be trying to learn from them, why you need to sell your customers transformation instead of your product, and why it's so important to get on the phone with customers, especially when you have a higher ticket product. Today, I'm joined by Misha Tenenbaum from EditStock. EditStock provides unedited film projects for students to practice video editing and was started in 2013 and based out of Los Angeles. Welcome, Misha. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you too. So we were just talking off air about how you launched this business with $4,000 in 2013. And you said that it was the most you would put into because you weren't sure it's going to work out. So tell us a story. Where did, uh, wh- what did you, first of all, do with the $4,000 when you first started the business? So I'll just start with what I did with the $4,000. I actually didn't even want to spend $4,000. I wanted to spend $1,000. Um, I had, I built up the Shopify site to look sort of the best that I could. And then I hired my close friend to, um, create a logo, to create, uh, to rebuild the look of the site, to make it sort of presentable and to work out any kind of technical portion of it that I wasn't capable of doing in Shopify. Shopify was very different five years ago. It's changed a lot um, and it's gotten a lot better. Uh, basically my goal was to spend as little as possible because, I was fairly certain that I wasn't going to be able to make a living out of it. And I was fairly certain, you know, I I just thought to myself, like, I don't want to lose any money on this. And I was really just trying to hedge my bets. And I think that was probably the best decision I made. Interesting, because I think it's like the, it's a little bit different than maybe polar opposite, actually, than what you hear a lot from the entrepreneurship kind of circles, which is you got to just go all in and put all your money into it, you know, dive right in and basically have no backup plan. But you had... Uh, a safety net. You had a safety net, and you didn't want to to inv- over invest and then lose everything. So, what, what do you think was the advantage of that that approach? I, I, yeah, and I also want to say that I um, was a fairly reasonable and small amount of money. It's not like four thousand dollars was my life savings at the time. I had a hundred thousand dollar a year job. I was doing well, so it wasn't um, it wasn't a huge deal. It wasn't a huge investment. Mostly. I was pretty sure, you know, I I definitely did not want to leave my job until I felt pretty comfortable um, that my store was going to make money. But I like, I don't know why I I didn't exactly believe that it would, but I, but I just wanted to do it so bad. And the reason I wanted to do it it, it is an important um, entrepreneurial lesson here. Um, I had the idea for edit stock years before it started probably three years before it started. And I did an interview, um, a a webinar about how to be an editor with someone. And I told them my idea. And I said, boy, someday I'd really love to do this. And I did nothing. And then three years later, the person that I told the idea to did it, essentially. They opened a website called um, filmdailies.com or stockfilmdailies.com, something like that. And I got the newsletter um, from them. And Actually, what I felt was not, I didn't feel any anger towards the other person. I felt shame because it was that um, I felt sort of like I was a coward about it. You know, that that um, it, it became in that moment more important to try and fail than it was a fear of failure. Uh, and that's that's just so important for entrepreneurs, which is basically like there's no such thing as failure. You just really, you got to. Go for it and try, but also don't waste all your resources, but absolutely go do it. You know, I, I can't believe that it took me that long to get started. And the other website, the um, competitor, I first I begged him to join me and do it together. And he said no. And then like a week later, he closed his company. And that was it. That was the end. It literally only lasted one week. 
And mine has lasted now five years. <laughs> wow. I like that, that you're saying that that, that that feeling of shame and cowardice drove you, uh, it basically uh, stuck with you more where you're more fearful of that than the fear of never have tried at all. So when you were making the decision that, hey, I got to at least give it, a, give it a shot, what were kind of some of the first things that you, you did to, to start setting up the business? Um, I highly recommend reading the book, The Lean Startup, which probably every entrepreneur has heard of at this point. Um, basically, I read that and then my college roommate um, became quite an impressive entrepreneur himself and was building a business at the time. And we talked about what would be my MVP, my minimum viable product. And I built uh, the website started out with just one commercial and one short film. The short film, so just to clarify, I sell movies, but I sell the raw footage, the unedited footage. And so um, a company hired me to shoot a film once, and uh, they gave me $6,000 to shoot the film, but I spent 10. And I didn't, I don't want to be a director. I don't want to be a producer or anything. I just like editing. So I didn't want to lose the $4,000. And I sold the movie back to my film school, the raw footage. And uh, for four, basically $4,000. And um, I thought like, God, there's got to be other film schools out there. So that's where the, the um, idea came from. Then to build the actual, the, the idea for Edit Stock, then to build the actual MVP, um, I spent that $4,000 to set up what the site would look like. And then just posted two films, my film, which I got access to for free. And then a filmmaker who I was introduced to gave me their commercial, which was shot for nothing, you know, just a few hundred dollars. Um, and I just started selling it right away. Um, I guessed on the prices. The first customer that I had buy something from EditStock said, I want to buy this for my school. Your price is $50. Is that per student or for the whole school? And I said, no, it's the whole school. She said, do you have any more? <laughs> you know, I want like 10 of these. Um, and so the second customer I talked to, I said, the price is $100. And they said, do you have any more? The <laughs> third third person I talked to, I said, the price is $200. And again, they were like, do you have any more? So finally, I settled on a price of $400 a project for a school. Um, and I found that price point basically through trial and error, basically through hiking the price until someone said no. I actually did the same thing with the individual projects because the way I don't, I sell a digital product. Um, so that means that my cost cost of goods isn't fixed. It fluctuates. And so I pay the filmmakers a percentage of whatever I take in. For example, they earn 30% of the sale price. So if I sell it for $100, I get 70. If I sell it for $10, I get seven. So for me, the goal is always make the sale and collect the most amount of money possible. Um, and so anyway, this was it was a whole process of trial and error. And also I had no infrastructure. I had no other... Um, monthly service fees other than just Shopify, which I think was 20 or $30 a month or something like that. So it was pretty easy to not fall into a pit of debt. I, I, so for, I want to take a pause here because this approach to figure out pricing, a lot of people are always stuck and aren't sure how much to charge. You took a very, it sounded like a pretty manual approach, but the direct feedback from the customers, like were you talking to them on the phone or something? Like how were you able to kind of throw this price out there and then get a, get kind of feelers out of it? Like how were you, how long did it take you to, 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 to figure out the, the max that you could charge? Um, well, the first three months of edit stock, I earned $100 in sales total in three months of sales. And in part, nobody was visiting the site, but also because my prices were just ridiculous. I was selling uh, short films to people for, you know, $9.99 or something or like, so the, okay, the way that, the way that you would do it nowadays and the way that we test, for example, coupon codes is of course, AB testing. Um, there's actually, with, with just Google Optimize, you can do it for free. Um, but the way that I did it then was talking to customers and a great piece of advice I got early on um, was to talk to 100 customers. The reason that that you pick a number, that the reason you pick 100 is because it has to be more people than the, your direct circle of friends. It has to be people you don't know. It has to be real, actual, random customers who are coming to your store and you have to speak to them in person and just try something, just put it out there. 
you know? What if you don't have a hundred customers yet? Is this, is there a way to, to kind of get the ball rolling even before then? You gotta, you gotta kind of man up and go find a hundred people. I mean, you have to have, if you don't feel like you can get a hundred customers, you don't have a company anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you gotta, um, whatever it is, go out on Facebook or go to, um, uh, a conference. For example, I went to a lot of conferences like the University Film and Video Association, UFDA, the National Association of Broadcasters, the, um, I don't know. I went to oh, the Student Television Network, which is high school uh, teachers. So I went to a lot of conferences. I had face-to-face -face interactions with um, hundreds or thousands of teachers, thousands of students. Um, you you have to get in their face. You know, you have to, the, the idea of, I, I also had this idea early on, like, I don't want to pester people with my newsletter. Um, and now I just, it's such a ridiculous concept to me that you wouldn't build a newsletter immediately. Now I'm actually building a new company and I'm starting to collect email addresses for the newsletter and announcements. We don't even have an MVP yet. Um, there, I, even, on, even with Shopify, as you're building your store, you can lock your store and collect email addresses on the face of it. And you should absolutely be doing that because as important as it is to figure out your um, your actual product, you will not know what marketing messages work on your audience unless you've literally delivered the pitch a thousand times. So I've refined my, my pitch. Some people call it the elevator pitch, but just from discussions at conferences, you know, I have such an approach, you know, I have such an answer to every question. And the, the answers to my questions are, based on hearing from so many customers from inter from doing uh, surveys for people. Um, if you have no product to offer, which I think was part of your question, which is how do you get a thousand customers it, or how do you, how do you talk to a hundred people if you don't know a hundred people? Basically you have to offer them something of value. So for edit stock, for example, you could write a blog post that, you know, you want to learn about what the best computer is for video editing. Um, Sign up for my email and find out or or interview me for five minutes and I'll and and I'll share that with you. In the case of edit stock, actually, we gave away a free scene, just three clips. And it was three clips in exchange for your email address. And then we started a, a sort of set of welcome newsletter um, drip campaign, which, again, you can set up in MailChimp for free. First 2000 members on MailChimp is free unless they've changed that. Mm -hmm. So I just want to kind of recap this. So you, if you're starting from scratch, you have nothing yet, or maybe you do, you do have a business, but you just don't have a good way to communicate with them. You're offering something of value to get their emails, get them to opt in. Now you have that channel of communication to talk to them. What are you asking them? What are some, some key questions that you asked early on that were kind of game changers for, for, for your business and the, the, the direction that you took the company? Basically I ask people, the first question is like, who are you? You know, how, basic demographics. How old are you? Are you a student? Um, what's your job? How much, how, how do you see yourself as an editor? Uh, are you a, a beginner? Is this a hobby for you? Are you a professional looking to advance in your career? And then you would, you would ask them questions like, what's your goal in editing? What's your goal in life? Um, What's your biggest obstacle to that goal? And I know these questions may sound sort of broad when you're thinking about your product, mm -hmm. but um, one just terrific piece of advice that I got from, actually from the Shopify blog, um, which I get, you know, every day or every week, or I think it's every day, um, is this formula. The formula is, Mario plus flower equals firepower. And so Mario is your customer, flower is your product, and firepower is what they want. And what you got to sell is firepower. You don't sell the product. So like, for example, um, I may say something about my films that I sell, like this footage was shot on the fanciest camera in the industry. But that doesn't necessarily resonate with the customer the same way that if I addressed the firepower portion, right? I, 
the best camera is talking about the product. But if I say something to them like, build the career you've always been looking for, that speaks to the firepower. That's what they want. Right. You want to sell the transformation of what they're getting on the other end of getting and using your product, not the product itself. That's exactly right. And that was something that I did not understand uh, initially. Um, and I wish I had gotten to that understanding faster. But now I feel totally, you know, I, I look at it's like it's like I can look at um, a product offering in just a, a totally new light. Got it. Okay, so you are using these kind of questions to understand your customers, and how do you implement this into your marketing? Like, what what what, do you, what does it actually spill out into the marketing and the messaging back out into your prospective customers? On the Edit Stock main landing page, if you were to go there now, it says "Build your editing demo reel," which is the thing that our customers want the most, and the um, tagline below it says. Stop waiting for your big shot and own career opportunities. So what we heard back from our customers is, is actually not that they feel insecure about their abilities to edit, which is something that you would maybe hear from a student. But what we heard back, and that's what you would think EditStock customers are. They're the students, but they're not. The students receive the footage from the schools. So schools, the teachers need to hear a different message. For the individuals buying things on EditStock, the um, message that they, or the person that they were is usually someone who is maybe already a professional in another field, like maybe they're a graphics designer, or maybe they're an editor already working in, say, reality shows, and they already feel capable of editing a scripted movie, but what they, what they feel that they're lacking is the opportunity to show a director what they can do. And so by buying edit stock footage, what they're doing is giving themselves the opportunity as opposed to needing to go out into the marketplace with no demo reel and try to convince someone just verbally, I can do it. So uh, how many, there's, so there's a couple of different customers. Is that what I'm, what I'm hearing? Different customer types? Because it sounds like you're saying that a lot of the... We have, uh, we have, basically two different market segments and mark, um, market segmentation is a very important thing for your audience to hear um, for the audience of this podcast, because if you, so the more you understand who wants your product, the more you'll understand that there's a pattern among them that they fall into different groups. And so for example, telling a teacher that a teacher needs to build a demo reel isn't a message that resonates with them. A message that resonates with your teacher is um, when the when the class ends, give your students inspiring material so that they want to stay after class and work so that you're not just giving them something they can throw away. You're giving them something that they can build their career out of. Um, you you want to give them the message that they're get that their students are going to get real world training, real world examples of things. So that's a very different message. Um, than to an individual, you know, or you, or a school might be interested in hearing something about uh, multi-user licensing, right? And or that you can, or that you can place an order with a purchase order, which takes a month uh, for me to receive. You know, th that kind of messaging an individual doesn't need to hear. And if you put that all on the same page, on the same web page, you could very easily turn off half your audience. You want to be like as focused on each segment as you can be. How, how do you do that? How do you set up the segmentation so that you're hitting the right type of customer with the right message? Um, one good way to do that is by making different landing pages. One piece of advice I would give someone is one page, one purpose. So each web page that your user goes to has to have a very specific purpose of what you want them to do or wh who the person is and what information you want them to garner. So for example, on EditStock, we have in the upper right corner, a button that says EDU. And actually during the site rebuild, one of the main things that we did was get rid of all the top navigation to the website. There is none. There's only one button that says EDU or on the landing page, there's only one place you can go, which is view the films. All the links on the landing page go to view the films. If you were to, if you were to set up a new site, the only navigation you should have at the top, um, 
for us, well, specifically for a service is pricing. That's it. Whatever helps you sell. You could have a, a tab for testimonials. You could have a tab for um, to cr- request a quote. You know, you could have a page for, um, you know, just schools or business to business. But what you don't want up in your main navigation is like your blog or like your um, tutorials. And the reason is I spend all this money and time and effort and advertising and, you know, focus to try to get the user to do a very specific thing, which is walk through a very specific funnel and answer very specific questions that we know that they have along the way. For example, our landing page, the purpose of it is to educate the customer about what edit stock is because we don't have uh, a product that you would just by default know what it is. When you go buy a t-shirt, you know what a t-shirt is. You don't need any explanation. But when you go to edit stock, you don't necessarily know why it's different than other stock footage or why it's, uh, or even why it will help you become an editor. Um, so there needs to be some explanation. Guys, so you are setting up these specific landing pages and each landing page is targeting one customer type and has only one outcome that you want them to leave uh, with. How many, how many, how much segmentation do you have? How many landing pages have you, do you usually create? We have two main ones that do, there's also, have you heard of the 80-20 rule? Mm-hmm. Uh, a very common, um, I think, problem that new, um, new entrepreneurs have is that they have all these different ideas, maybe 10 different ideas, but only one or two of them are only 20% of them are going to lead to 80% of the revenue. And the other 20% of the features you want to build are only going to lead to 20% of the revenue. You know, you, you shouldn't, you shouldn't build that stuff at all. So like when edit stock started, I had a sound library where you could build projects for sound effects, uh, for sound design. I had a project called the camera film database where you could download one example piece of footage to test in your editing software. It was all free. Um, and then, the, you know, nobody bought the sound products. Nobody bought the, um, the camera footage database stuff. People were only buying the footage. And ultimately, I actually decided that the other things were a distraction. So even though you could in your mind think, well, but they lead to 20% of the profit, but they take, you know, so much time to develop that your time is much better spent focusing on the part that works. So to answer your question about how many landing pages we have, two main landing pages that deal with 80% of our customers, and that's the main landing page and the educational one, the main landing page for individual, the individual segment. Individual meaning like people that are not from educational institutions? Correct. And then we have a separate uh, landing page for each one of our partners. So, for example, we're partnered with um, a company called Avid Technologies, which is a $500 million company, um, which has 500 schools using their official curriculum. And edit stock is used in that curriculum for those 500 schools. So we built a landing page just for them. So if you're an Avid teacher, you go to editstock.com slash Avid. And there is all the information very specific to those teachers, including specific offerings for those teachers. Got it. Yeah, we have a similar thing with another company called The Foundry, where we offer some footage for a tutorial that they're teaching. But in order to get that footage, you have to sign up for our newsletter. And that page only has one spot just to sign up for the newsletter and that's it. So these these landing pages that you've created, how how does the traffic get to, to to the landing pages? Great question. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I'm certainly working on it, but edit stock basically doesn't advertise. We get a lot, we do pretty well organic traffic wise. You, you have these landing pages set up and it, they're very targeted to, to a customer type, but how do you make sure that the right customer type actually falls into the right funnel? Right. Okay. So for something like Avid, which is, this is a, that's B2B. And whenever you're doing B2B, you don't, need to worry as much about something like SEO. What you really need to worry about is how does the customer find out from my partner that I exist? And so in every single email, as soon as a uh, school 
becomes an AVID certified training school, they get a link in the email that says visit editstock.com forward slash AVID to download the materials you need and hear about offers. So that, that is very specific. In terms of the main landing page of EditStock for the individual segment, um, I've absolutely used um, Google Webmaster Tools and Google Keyword Planner, which is in AdWords, um, to make sure that uh, my page is showing up to relevant searches. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I spent a lot of time um, and actually made some investments on SEO. Um, I do not recommend hiring an SEO person. I recommend becoming educated on how SEO works and becoming diligent about um, making sure all of your product images have or have alternate text, making sure that in your product pages on Shopify, when you go down to the bottom that you're uh, of the product page, product building page, that you've included um, really good headlines and really good uh, descriptions of your links because you know you can hire an SEO expert all day long but if you as the CEO don't if, if you don't know what they're doing how can you lead them to, towards success you know you have to understand it yourself and then later on I can hire an SEO person and say reread my product descriptions check my product descriptions against uh, Google ad, uh, Google uh, Keyword Planner and make sure that I'm making smart decisions there. But if you just say, go do SEO, then you are just ripe, a ripe target for one of the million sort of Connie SEO nonsense people who will be contacting you. So you, you mentioned that you partnered with these two companies, those at Avid Technologies and Blackmagic Design to have your product used for training classes. Well, how, how did you come across this, the, these businesses? Like what, what, what is the, how did you begin this relationship? Um, well, in part, I know them. I know people who work there personally. I want to say about entrepreneurship, boy, I had such a good lesson fairly recently about this. So I had a meeting with someone, just a phone call meeting with someone who owned a company that was, let's say, doing $10 million a year in revenue. And my company does significantly less than that. Before the phone call, I had read about their background. I had um, created a, a document where I just thought about ahead of the phone call, key points of the phone call that I'd like to have with them. Um, what do I want to get out of the phone call? What do I have to offer them? And actually, uh, Felix, I did a similar thing before this podcast um, because what I'm, what you do when you do that is you're showing respect for the person's time. You're not wasting their time, and you're and you are um, providing something value. You know, you're bringing value, and you know what you want because you don't have too many opportunities to have important phone calls like that. But what really surprised me and the sort of moral of this story is that the person on the other end of that phone call did the same thing. Um, and I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting them to say, who are you again? And what's your company again? And what do you guys do? And I think what I realized is that professionalism goes, su it goes such a long way. And you know, all the partners that I've worked with the reason that I'm allowed in the door to talk to them at all is professionalism. You know, you you don't just you don't just call a company with hundreds of million dollars in revenue and say we should partner. I'd love to work with you guys. What what can I do? You go to them and say I have a very specific thing. I want to have a contest. I want to give you guys X, my customers. I want in exchange, you know, your platform. How can we make this work? Right. You got to bring something of value to them. You don't just come up to a company and say, um, you know, oh, please, 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 because that's not how they don't care about that. Oh, please, please, please is worthless. So for Avid, for example, they used to deliver their footage on DVDs in the back of the book. And what I told them is I will make this a downloadable process that is instant and you will not have to pay data transfer um, fees, my company will take care of that. And that to them was enough. 
I think one key thing you bring up here is that you're not coming to them and adding more things to their, their to-do list, giving them more work. You're trying to see how you can make their job easier and by, by bringing this kind of value. And even if there are things that you guys need to partner on, you make it very clear what they need to do, what you'll be doing to accomplish that. So it makes that yes a lot easier to get to. Exactly. And, and also have some confidence in yourself, man. You know, they don't know when they, when they talk to your company, when you approach it as a professional, they don't know how big or small you are. They don't even care. They literally don't care. They care about what do I want? So you just have some confidence in yourself. If you're that entrepreneur and you feel like you're, you know, you're a new entrepreneur and you feel like if I could only get into Bed Bath and Beyond, then I'll be uh, successful. Make your plan and call them. You know, don't don't be shy about it. Definitely. So you also mentioned that the most of the business right now, or a lot of it is B2B and you want to transition more to towards B2C, sell directly to, to these individuals, which is an interesting challenge because a lot of times what we have guests on the show that are going the opposite direction. What has that been like? What is this, what is the strategy here to make this transition from, from B2B over to more of a B2C model, or at least expanding the B2C model? I don't, I don't actually, so just to, um, give you some sort of loose statistics, about 75% of Edit Stock's revenue comes from B2B, from directly from schools. And it's not because there's more of them than our individual customers, it's because they place much larger orders. Just, mm-hmm. just literally, they spend more money. Um, so the reason that I want to, I don't wanna shift to B2C and get rid of my school customers, um, actually, I'm focusing on improving both avenues. Um, there's no limit to how well you can know your customer or how uh, specific a message you can be sending to them. If history has shown us anything, it's that over the last 10 years, it's gotten more and more and more refined as you add things like retargeting of ads um, or, you know, or just the, <laughs> you can you can get such much granular knowledge of your customers nowadays. The reason that I want to grow to B2C segment um, of the company is because um, there's a lot more of them out there. There are about 20 million editors out there who own editing software and are editing projects. They might not all be looking for training, but some portion of them is. And there's only 6,000 um, colleges in the country. So it's there's a, there's a lot more opportunity, I think, in, in B2C. So um, what we've been working on lately is actually our very first um, Google AdWords testing. And um, we made, uh, we're placing our introduction video in front of very specific YouTube channels. And we're doing just $5 a day, mini experiments to hone what works and what doesn't work. And finding a lot of things that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think because you have so much experience on educational institutions, I think that this is a, 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 a interesting topic here about how to how to do that. What is it? What, what is it like to sell to educational institutions? Like, what do they typically care about that maybe an individual might not care about? A school cares about. So, for example, very early on, I under, I learned from feedback from schools. What they care about is that there's no swearing or violence or adult themes in their movies, that the movies have to be rated P or, uh, uh, sorry, uh, G or PG-13. That was something that um, I never considered, especially because most of my movies come from 20 to 35-year-old filmmakers who mostly want to push the envelope. Actually, 20 is a little young. They're mostly like in their 30s. Um, and they enjoy pushing the envelope. So I actually get a lot of submissions where I say, you have great actors, you have great film festival awards, you have great um, footage, but your total revenue is going to be low because you have a subject matter that isn't going to sell well to schools. One example of that, we have a movie here called Ashes, which does sell to individuals pretty well. People love it. It's beautiful, but it's a horror movie. And at one point, uh, somebody, you know, shoots themselves in the head with a shotgun and their head explodes. And that's just like, it's really cool if you're just some guy who wants to become an editing instructor, uh, an editor. 
but that's not really cool if you're the dean of film studies at Loyola you know, Marymount University. You might not want that um, to share with your class. You know, so. Um, so, yeah, anyway, they, they have different um, different different needs. Makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit about the the team and scaling up. So you mentioned, I think, early on that you are the, the core of the company and and most of the other people that are working on this are contractors or people that you hire part-time. Talk to us about this. When did you start looking to expand outside of just, just yourself? Um, not for a long time, and maybe I waited too long, actually. Uh, my web designer, like I said, I, I put that $4,000 into the company and I just said to myself, from now on, everything that goes into the company has to be from the revenue of the company. And that that um, idea is called bootstrapping, but it was something that I had, I, I just didn't know what that even was. And I was mostly doing it out of fear of, you know, fear of the risk of losing money. Um, so actually for the first, say, maybe six months, um, when I, I used to mail out, physically mail out every single month checks to my filmmakers. And when I did that, I hand wrote on the envelopes um, their addresses and my address, my address specifically over and over and over again. And I refused to buy a $12 stamp with my address on it because I just said, I will not spend another dollar that this company doesn't make on its own. So I've had these sort of mini celebrations along the way. Um, and some of the mini celebrations were like, I hired a bookkeeper um, who now works all the time. And I um, receive quarterly uh, P&L statements. Uh, I don't know that that was necessary early on when there was no sales and no expenses, but now it's absolutely necessary, you know, when you're spending thousands of dollars a month. Um, I hired um, um, an assistant editor. So when I first my first movies, I only had one or two movies and I had no customers. So I spent my time preparing the products. But as now we've grown and now I'm spending my time making quotes and answering customer questions and, you know, dealing with sort of a, a more busy day to day, I hire an assistant editor to come in when I have new movies and prepare the movies for sale. Um, other people that I hired. Um, and not just my web um, designer, but also a web developer who does more hardcore coding. So, for example, on edit, uh, and this is cool. This is really cool to talk about. Um, if you pick any product on edit stock, the number one request that we heard back from uh, customer surveys when we were doing this rebuild was that customers wanted to see the footage first. So this is the equivalent of trying on the clothes before you buy them. Mm -hmm. Um, I hired my web developer to make uh, the view footage button. When you press it, um, a sort of a new tab opens up and you can actually look at all of the footage inside of the product before you buy it. And one cool feature we added in uh, is the buy button. So in Shopify, you can make a new channel. The channel is a can be a buy button, which is essentially HTML text that you can embed inside of another website. And so now when a view, when a customer presses view footage, not only does this new web page open up, but they can actually buy the product right there using an HTML snippet from my site. Um, and we've done a similar thing with other companies that we've partnered with, one specifically called Master the Workflow. They teach uh, editing assistant, ed uh, sorry, assistant editing training. and we provide the course material for them. So I've got a partnership with them where using an embedded buy button, when a customer places an order, I actually receive the order, I fulfill the order, and Master the Workflow, my partner, gets an email. I've set them up as if they were a vendor, as if they were providing a hard uh, product item. So they get an email saying what the sale was, who it was to, um, and then when I, you know, then I fulfill the sale um, and at the end of the month, I send them a report with what their percentage of the sale is, you know, we split the profits. 
Got it. Well, one one thing that I think that it might be custom on your site that I like a lot is this section called Compare Edit Stock to Traditional Editing Practice Footage. It lists uh, Edit Stock, uh, Traditional Stock, YouTube, Online Training, Freelance Client, and then all of these different features that Edit Stock has that that other uh, I guess uh, methods do not include all of. What where did the idea behind this come from? The the idea from this came from my second web designer. <laughs> so I had um, my first guy, he's a graphics artist uh, living in Los Angeles and a close friend of mine. And he has rebuilt edit stock every single time. We're on version 4.0. So about every year we massively overhaul everything about the website. And actually initially when we did this rebuild, we were only gonna rebuild the product pages. We're only gonna start from sort of the bottom of the funnel and work backwards. But it became quickly clear to me, this time I hired a marketing um, person to help me with the process. So the marketing person came in, we did the surveys, and we realized that the problem, and actually we also used an analytics uh, uh, company called Hotjar to record user visitors and uh, record uh, heat maps so we could see or and um, you know mouse clicks. So we could see where users, what they were clicking on, what they weren't clicking on. Um, and we were trying to determine where are people falling out of the funnel. And so uh, in that process, we came to a pretty pretty good landing page, but I kind of felt like it wasn't quite right yet. So I hired a second opinion uh, web designer. And I think we kept about, you know, maybe 30% of his ideas. And the most important one of them by far was this chart. <laughs> the, uh, the chart does a good job of answering the question, why don't I use just regular old stock footage? Or why don't I pull something off of YouTube for free? These are common questions that um, when people talk about my product on places like Reddit, there's always, you know, you might have Five people say, oh, we love it. It's the greatest soft, it's the greatest footage ever. But you're always going to get one or two people saying, yeah, but you could just rip something off YouTube for free. Or yeah, but you could just use traditional stock footage and pay less. Or yeah, but you should just go get a job on Craigslist for free. And then you don't have to pay anything and you have a real client, right? And so we wanted to lay out for them, for, for everyone, why... Um, Edit stock really is the best approach. And this sort of helps answer all those questions. Yeah, I think any business out there has the same type of questions that their customers are asking. Like, you know, why should I buy from you? Or why shouldn't I go for a free solution? Why not buy from your competitor? And I think something like this really lays it out very clearly and answers that question for, for them that almost makes it uh, no longer an objection. Exactly. Got it. So, uh, so other than these changes you made to your site, talk to us about how it's all run. Like what kind of apps do you use to, to keep, you mentioned Hotjar is one of them that you, you use. Are there any other apps that you rely on to run the business? Yes, I do. Mail, first of all, MailChimp or another um, newsletter platform is just absolutely essential. Um, I'm going to run through, I'm on my uh, apps page, so I'm just going to run through some of the apps Please. that I use. These are These are also very practical. I don't have any, and I'm not going to name any names, but I, I don't have any gimmicky apps. I don't have any apps that are like, um, you know, spin the wheel or sign the, <laughs> or play the game or whatever. These are all super practical, um, needed day to day. Not, not that I'm poo pooing the value of those other things. It's just that this is like, this is my, my approach. So original, even though I don't use it anymore or not very often, the digital downloads app. It's free. It's built by Shopify. And it was how I delivered all the footage on my website until I ultimately decided I wanted a more robust solution. Um, because the digital downloads apps has some limitations, like it can only do five gigabyte downloads. And some of my downloads are more like 20, 30 gigs. So I ultimately, but it was great because it was free. So I used it for a long time and I've replaced it with SendOwl. SendOwl is amazing. SendOwl can do um, can do subscriptions for you or it can do multi-part downloads. It can track 
Um, it can create, uh, if you're selling software licenses, it can create IDs for those. I use it to deliver, let's say a customer buys three movies for me, they're going to get 20 download links. And now it can all be spread apart in, on one nice um, page. Okay, I know that was a lot about SendNow. I just really like them. Um, I use an app called Locksmith, which only allows certain users access to certain pages. And for if you think about my B2B customers, for example, Avid, I don't want every customer in the world to have access to the material that their customers are paying for. So some pages are locked. And the only way to get access to those pages is with a password. Um, and so Locksmith makes that possible. Um, a great app for developers, and this is not for the everyman. This is for if you have a developer and you need a very specific thing, Metafields Editor, which is free, um, allows you to, and I, I'm not going to explain this as well as my um, developer would, but dig, it allows you to access, I guess, more of the Shopify API. So we used it, for example, we used to have a sound effects library where you could press play on a sound and it would play and you could press download and it would download. And those sounds needed to be connected to a cloud storage solution. And one way to make that possible was to use the Metafields editor. We're using product filter and search. That it has become essential to edit stock. And that was uh, a big part of the rebuild. So I used to have top menus that had uh, all my different product uh, categories. So for example, if you wanted a movie that was a horror film, you would go to the genre menu and pick horror film. And then if you wanted a movie that was rated PG-13, you would go to the ratings menu and choose PG-13. But if you wanted a horror movie that was rated PG-13, you couldn't do that. So product filter and search allows you to do that. It also allowed me to not use a main menu navigation for this purpose. I actually made a, a menu on the left side of the screen. And so um, that allows me to declutter, take away noise from my funnel, because I don't want that menu on my landing page. I only want it on the collections page. Got it. So this helps it helps customers like really narrow down what they're looking for. Exactly. And then um, finally, sort of the last, well, I guess I'll talk about two more apps. I don't know if this is too many apps to talk about, but. I think the more the better, I think, uh, especially if you can tell us about your experience with it and how it's helped you with your business. Okay. Okay, great. Um, you asked earlier about how do you find those first hundred customers? Mm -hmm. The the answer to that question is by installing Pure Chat. Uh, Pure Chat is free. And you can, I mean, people will use it. So you can literally sit there and just, as you're working on X, Y, or Z for your company, if a, if a user comes by and they have a question, they'll ask you. And what you're looking for in their questions is not any one question, it's a pattern in their questions. Mm -hmm. If 25 people ask you, um, uh, is this a multi-part download or is this a one-part download? You may think the first customer's question was a stupid one, um, but if you heard it 25 times, it's not them who aren't being clear, it's you who's not being clear. Right. Pure chat has been great for us. And this is just like a li live chat thing in the corner of your website? That's right. And um, sometimes I turn on the chat function. Some Usually I don't because it can be a little overwhelming. But um, I do leave up you know, email us and download us and uh, I'm email us and download us, sorry, email us and call us. And uh, people do absolutely take advantage of those uh, contacts. Also, we and that's especially true if you're doing a B2B sale. You're going to convince someone to spend $50 or $20 without a phone call. There's no way you're going to convince a person to spend $1,000 without a phone call or an email. It just won't happen. They want to talk to a human. Yes. Even if they know 100%, even if you made your landing page as clear as day, they might just call you and just read to you the landing page. This happens to me a lot. They'll call and they'll say, 
okay, so your package deal is any three projects for $1,000, right? I say, yes. And they say, and students can use this on their demo reel, as it says in the uh, grid? Yes. And they can, uh, and you know, I can do X, Y, or Z? Yes. Okay, great. We'd like to place an order. A big part of it is that it, as a customer, it's a lot more palatable to give money to a human than to a faceless website, to like a, a machine, essentially. I think just being able to talk to someone allows people to be like, oh, okay, yeah, they're actually exchanging money with someone that is a real person you know, on the other end. It, it, like you mentioned, especially as the price points get higher, that expectation to, to talk to a human gets, gets even more more necessary. Yes, you're 100% right. The last uh, app to talk about that I think is worth mentioning, I have others in here, but I'm kind of giving you the ones that are my day-to-day beasts of burden. Um, Another app that I think is really worth it, and I've used it a few times, it used to be called Hey Carson, but now it's called Store Tasker. Mm -hmm. You, You can hire someone for 60 bucks, 50 bucks, I think it's maybe you can do um, three small projects for one hundred and fifty dollars. You can hire a developer to handle some little thing like my newsletter is not working or my um, I can't figure out how to change the menus, how they look or where they are or whatever. And unless you are a developer, every entrepreneur on Shopify is going to run into something, some little thing that they wish they could do. And, you know, I don't have a full time in-house developer. Um, so generally speaking, for my web developer, I have a I have a task list task eh, task list that I assemble over a period of time, maybe a couple of weeks, and then I say, um, "Hey designer, here are the twenty five things I want you to do," and then I hire him to work for a week straight. But every now and then, there's like one little thing I need to get fixed, and when it's one little thing, I'd rather just I just do a little one off whatever, or my designer isn't available, I just do a little one-off thing. Got it. All right, so Misha, thank you so much for your time. So edistock.com is a website. Where do you want to see the business go for the next year? Like, What are you focused on? I am actually building a second business called Edit Mentor, um, which is going to be an interactive uh, game that teaches people the creative art of editing and solves what is now my customer's biggest question, which is for... um, not just the physical materials, but also the actual curriculum. So I have a super interesting way to do curriculum. And um, that that's, yeah, that's where my business is going. Awesome. So that's at, that's at editmentor.com? Editmentor.com. And you'll notice, literally nothing is built for the website. And you'll notice that you can already sign up to join the beta. <laughs> nice. Well, definitely following the advice that you gave. And again, thank you so much for your time, Isha. It's editstock.com, editmentor.com coming soon. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.